So I'll say that again. Good morning, church. What a blessing it is to be before you today. Um, I'm thankful. It's been a little while since I've been to the Garden Church, and it is a blessing to see like a garden. It looks like a well-taken-care-of garden because the membership looks wonderful, and to see you growing is a blessing indeed. Uh, I greet you in the matchless name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Um, on behalf of the elders and the leaders in our church at First Baptist Church, it is always a blessing to partner with the Garden Church, and once again, then, it is a blessing to be here. So as we get started, I'm going to say, if you have your Bibles, I'll be preaching out of Psalm 31, and um, I'm not sure which page that is in your Bibles, but... It is in the book of Psalms, and it will be Psalm 31. And if you wouldn't mind, just, uh, I, I love the prayers and I love the praise, uh, but I'd like to start us off with a brief time of prayer, uh, that God would bless his word as it comes forward. Would you join me? Gracious Lord, we thank you once again for the blessing. We thank you, Father, for... Um, what we have sung, and Father, what we have prayed, and the word that has been read. So now, Father, bless this time as your preach word leaves forth from these pages, Lord, and through this preacher's mouth. But Father, most of all, give it the power of the Spirit to rest upon the hearts, and that, Lord, it would blossom and grow, and it would yield the harvest that you have intended. We thank you. Father, now let all of us decrease let me decrease so that you might increase the more. And so we thank you, and I thank you for the opportunity. Bless our time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I want to thank again my um, wife, friends, my youngest son. We've been here before. My son was in college when the last time we came, right over at Morgan State. So I know there's some Morganites or some, some bears, I think they are, around here. But, uh, but it's good for him to come back as well. Um, one of the things that, as we start, I think one of the areas that we have struggled with over these past years um, has been areas that deal with stress, anxiety. I remember uh, it was about late fall in 2019, and I was speaking to some friends in East Asia, and they were just coming off of a wild year. Their church had been broken up. Um, it actually was, uh, by the government, it was divided. It was found out. It was an underground church that was, if you know anything about some of the places in Asia, it was underground, but it was known. But unfortunately, they had to disband, and it was a rough season. But praise be to God, they were able to continue having church. And so they had to divide up into two churches. And it was a fearful thing, but yet God gave them grace. And so at the end of 2019, we were blessing God for what looked like plan A that did not go the way it planned. We were now into plan B. And then came the end of December and early January 2019 to 2020. So now we get a call and we're praying and we find out that the new church has had to uh, uh, cease 
because there was a virus that had been found out. And in that virus, they had shut everything down. And so in my mind, I was thinking like, wow, that's, that's just awful. I mean, you're going from one bad thing to another bad thing. And, and now the virus is like, well, we have to pray for them. Not knowing that the very thing that was going on there would end up spreading to the whole world. And so 2019 turns to 2020, and you have issue after issue. You have all of these things that start to come up, and overnight your plan A, your plan B goes to pot. What do you do? And we know when it hit the world, it became the biggest thing to affect us in generations. And it's still affecting us now. It's caused rising distrust division. It's held families in their grips. Turmoil after turmoil has gone in these past couple of years. It leaves people wondering about institutions and and agencies, uh, governments, even the church. Suddenly one, these areas that we trusted and had great faith in, became a slippery slope of, do I trust this person? Do I trust that? Am I, am I getting the right information? What should I believe in? Who should I align myself with? Turbulent times. But as my friend mentioned, one thing that though through all these things, and even though they were being even persecuted where they were, he reminded me of Paul's words. When Paul said to Timothy, remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as he preached in my gospels, for which I am suffering. Bound with chains is a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. If God's word is not bound, the people who go forth with his word are not bound. And so we had great hope and great encouragement. And then the challenging times, they even rolled over into this years. And then it just seems like God has been working both with them. They're now on plan J. So it's, it's, it's been one of those kind of seasons. Praise be to God. He keeps giving plans. Even if it got to Z, we'd get back to double A. So it is, God, God isn't exhausted with the things that he do. He just needs willing folks that want to go with him. And so the challenges that we see, they're not lost. They're not new. The writer in Psalm 31 helps us understand turbulent times and all the ways in which we can be tossed with distress, anxiety, all of those things weren't new. But what he wants us to understand is that one of the things we can be for sure is that we need to trust in something, someone outside of ourselves. And in this case, the psalmist helps us understand that that starts with trusting in God, who alone is the only one absolutely trustworthy. But we sometimes wonder, but can I trust him? Can I rely on God when life 
really gets bad? Can I trust him to meet the needs I have no matter what they may be? Will he rescue me? Will he restore me? Will he get my strength back to where it once was? And during the most bizarre and distressing times, can he restore our life to a spirit of love and peace and hope in him? Well, the wonderful thing is, as we go through this psalm today, we will notice three great reasons why we can trust with confidence in our God, especially in the midst of hard and difficult and distressful times. And so if you're taking notes, we're going to read the passage from chapter 31 in the Psalms. And the reason that we can trust God in these most difficult times is because God is the source of our trust. God is the source of our trust. If you have your Bibles then reading in Verse 1, chapter 31, it says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me, and you take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet on a broad place. Amen. When David helps us, and we believe this is David who wrote this psalm, that it is one that oftentimes we see the the character of David in the psalm. He was troubled. The problem is, when was David in trouble? David was in trouble a lot. And so which point of David's trouble does this psalm help us understand? And, and it resonates deep with a personal trust in God and in the depths of difficulty. It's to believe that this one, though it might have been earlier saw, but I think as we go through this in most uh, those that would review would agree that this psalm was most likely written when David was on the run from his son, Absalom. And just a little context, why would David be running from his son, Absalom? Because David, though he was a great and mighty king, was not quite the great and mighty king at home. And when David sinned with Bathsheba, God let David know that there would be turmoil in the sword would be in his household. Another way of saying, David's household would be excruciatingly chaotic. And so Absalom is David's son. Absalom's sister was Tamar. Tamar was raped by her stepbrother, 
David's son. And instead of resolving that conflict, David did nothing. So Absalom took matters in his own hand, revenging what had happened to his, daughter, to his sister. He killed Amnon, his other half-brother. And so you have this dysfunction going on, and you would say that, well, then things probably should have gone bad for Absalom, but not in this household. Absalom is restored only to create a coup in David's government in Israel so that all of Israel would then turn against, would turn against David to the degree that David had to flee for his life. And that's when it's believed this song came about as David was fleeing from Absalom. And so it's an interesting feature of the psalm that is often quoted because of the depths of what is displayed. It's often quoted throughout the Bible. You'll see it as far as David probably writing the same psalm of 71 because the first three verses are exactly the same. As well as in Psalm uh, 71, we also have Jonah in Jonah 2 uh, also quoting this psalm. Not only Jonah, but also Jeremiah. And Jeremiah would quote this six times in, his, in the letters from Jeremiah, as well as the prophetic letters of Jeremiah, as well as Lamentations. Paul would also quote it, but most importantly, Jesus would quote from this psalm. And so it has the depths to help us understand what do we do and how do we see God as that one who can eliminate or bring us through these difficult and hard times. So David starts out this section then uh, explaining the security of God. Why can the source of our trust be God? Well, then we have to be secure that God is the one whom we can place our trust in. And so when we hear the words that are being brought out, we hear often in these first several verses the words refuge, rock, fortress, that these are words that help us understand a theme of reliance and trust in God. And so David goes on to help us understand that when we talk about hiding ourselves in the fortress and that I take refuge in God, it's saying that I have taken a step of faith and placed my trust in God, who is the one who can eliminate the threats and the oppression and the suffering. He is the one that I want to find myself aligned with. He is the one I trust and affirms the righteousness that we will see that I have claimed in him, not in myself, but in him. And so David helps us understand that beginning things starts with us putting our trust and our faith in the rock and in the trust of God himself. He is the rock of strength, the strong fortress or a stronghold. He is that refuge. And David uses every word in the Hebrew language that he could find a sing about the security of God with graphic pictures to help us comfort, to use the words when we can't find what to say. David gives us that language. 
And because his hope is now rested firmly in the Lord, David has the legacy and the history of having trusted God, running from Saul, that now even in this circumstance, he knows who to turn to, who will be the one who rescues and frees him and is able to, if anything can be done, David counts that it must be the Lord who will do it. It's very clear that even David understands that the Lord was the first priority and it was his first source. He says, O Lord, in you I take refuge. He first understands it's the Lord, then the refuge. And so David is saying, it's the center of you, Father. It's you where I find my rest and my refuge. David loves to serve the Lord and his heart's greatest desire was to serve God. He says, in your righteousness, deliver me. It's interesting, Martin Luther saw this passage, the great Protestant reformists who uh, went against the Catholic Church. This was one of the scriptures that Martin Luther found salvific, meaning that this is what brought him to the faith. Because Martin Luther couldn't understand how could God's righteousness deliver. His words were, how could God's righteousness deliver David? He says, I can understand the righteousness of God, his great justice, but it could only condemn him to hell as a righteous punishment for his sins. How could it deliver? And then he read Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, for it is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Luther said he finally understood what the righteousness of God revealed by the gospel. It's not speaking of the holy God's righteousness that must come against sin and condemn the guilty. But it's the righteousness of God that is given to the sinner who puts his trust in Jesus Christ. In that righteousness, it's no longer mine, but God's own righteousness. And in his righteousness, he delivers me. Even what it takes to be delivered isn't my own doing. It's the grace of God. And so when he came to this understanding, we see the power of the passage. David saw what he saw thousands of years later. David understood, it's your righteousness that leads me and will protect me. He says, for your name's sake, David didn't ask to be rescued because he was so good. He said, for your name's sake. What is his name? His name is Jehovah, Yahweh. He is the transcendent God. He is the God who is eternal. Most of all, for David, he is the covenant-keeping God. Off that name, God, honor your name, for I stand upon your name. And in that, David could put confidence and faith. God, deliver me for your name's sake. Church, it's a way that we understand. We don't deserve anything but wrath. But when we find ourselves repentant and in the 
holy place of God, we don't have to call upon my will be done. It's God, your will be done. You protect me by your name's sake. And it gave David great confidence to be able to do this. And when he does that, he slips into for your name's sake. And then he gets to this passage, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it's a wonderful word. It's a wonderful scripture because it's notable that it's into your hands I commit my spirit, not my soul. Why does he use my spirit instead of my soul? Because this would be the very same passage that Jesus Christ used as his last word on the cross. Because it wasn't just the being that David was talking about in here that his life, but it's literally life and death. Lord, there's nothing that is I would keep from you. Into your hands, into your control, into your outcomes, into your perfect will, do I trust not only my life, which we will get to, but my death. If death should be the outcome, I trust you with that. This is the perspective Jesus gives us. It's not a surrender to despair and hopelessness, but to a secure trust in God. When our circumstances seem troublesome or even hopeless, Often we'll feel driven to take control, to find out our own way out of the mess. Our, our inward being keeps telling us, I can't trust anyone else to take care of my needs. If my need is to be met in this circumstance, I must be the one to find a way to do it myself. Now, I know none of you all think like that. I'm the sinner in the room. And so... We tend to think, if I can keep this under wraps, maybe I can get far enough down the road. Maybe I can do these things. Maybe I can work this mess out, and it will work out for the best. And the further I keep working at it, the more it keeps going wrong. And I get to the point where I says it's, it's hopeless. But that's because... We're doing it in our strength. We're trying to resolve a problem that only God can resolve if we will bring it to him. If we're willing to say into, my, into your hands, I give my spirit. It's letting God be the one who controls what occurs and we need to rest that he will do the right thing. Jesus looked at this on the cross, and Luke brings it out, that Christ, in the midst of taunting enemies, fearful, doubting disciples, he enters into death as an act of commitment to the righteousness of God's truth, who alone can be trusted to vindicate an enduring faith of righteousness. Jesus left his soul, left his being, to God's determination. And God did not take him off the cross. 
God did not lessen the pain that he suffered during that trial. The spirit in this way is to give up any control, giving up the spirit, any control, expectation over the outcome of life and trusting God for his redemptive love. It's this giving up that makes it possible in the final analysis to enter the refuge of God. We can't get past the ridicule, but what God can give us is a simple way that we no longer care about those who would come against us because they're going against our God. And in surrendering our claim to what we had thought to be life, we discover the true nature of living in the power of God alone in his presence. Jesus found the presence of God to be the best. It's the thing that he desired most, always to be in the presence of God. And so what do you find yourself hanging on to today? Unwilling to give up. Unwilling to sacrifice for God's blessing of knowing he is the only object. He is the only way in which I can surrender everything to because by him being the source of trust, unlike bank accounts, unlike spouses, unlike schools, unlike governments, unlike anything here, he never changes. He's always right. He's always doing what is good in that and in him I can put my trust in that. So that is the first. David gives us the way in which we can make God our trust and be trustworthy for us is to make him the source of our trust. But secondly, David brings us to understand that even in that, God gives us still another way that we can trust him, and that is by accepting his gracious love for me. Accepting his gracious love for me. In verses 9 through 18, David says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of you, all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Verse 14, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolent against the righteous in pride and contempt. So let's stop there.
David is distressed. This is the, 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 the heart of his message. David is identifying the anguish by which brought him to the point of writing this psalm. He says, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. David is in a dark and deep, contemptible place that his neighbors have put, that his enemies have put, that all of those who know have put him in a place where David has no solace. And David's health is the recipient. The, the description here speaks of one who not only is going through something mentally, emotionally, but it's gotten to the point that it's affected his very physical being. Have you ever been in a painful situation or in a, in a sense of, of, of anxiety and in a sense of just everything coming in on you that the very flesh and bone ache? I have headaches. I, have, uh, uh, my, I wake up in the morning and sweat and I'm tight and my muscles are just clenched up. They don't work like they used to. And it's not because I'm getting old, though I am, but it is because I'm going through something that it's so difficult that it hits you at the very physical level. That's what David is trying to get us to. This is the level. Who do I go to when I get there? Why can I trust God in that situation? David had enemies his neighbors. He had acquaintances and strangers. He didn't just have one bad situation. David had everybody around him in some capacity against him. What's it like when you're isolated and probably the most hurtful ones are your neighbors, the people who know you most? Those hurts can be the stabs that go the deepest and leave the greatest wounds. David was suffering all of that. And on top of that, the once king, the once prince king that all the people shouted and yelled and screamed, David's our man, David's our king, David kills 10,000 souls, all that's gone. As we get older, all of our fame, all the glory, all the things that could be depended on are gone. They don't remember you anymore. My times are in my hands because, God, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. He got to such a low place that we would say, for a lot of folks, that's pretty much where we call it a day. It's been a good life. David's lived an old, good life. It's, it's time to call it a day. But David knew of the strength that he didn't have. And he, he lifts his own self up. When he gets to verse 7, 14, he's going down a slippery slope, and it's looking bad, 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 until David remembered something. 
but I trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. So as he said before, I I hate those who put their trust in fake idols. I, I hate that. Why? Because it's worthless, but you, God, you're real. You are the source of strength. You are the one whom I can come to. So then David turns and he says, I trust in you, Lord. You are my God. And then he starts on the uprise. My times are in your hand. First it was his life and death, but now it's times. Which means, God, you have everything that controls the here and now. David's lost the, my day is coming and it's, and, and it's about to close down on me to all of a sudden, not only are my, is my spirit in your hands, but my times and my circumstances right here. Now everything is yours, God. And I'm trusting you for everything. My times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hand of my enemy. I am getting out of the focus of being in my enemy's hand to now being in your hand. And you can imagine once that clicks, it's like being in a, if you've ever been in a, what we used to say, a a, a school scuffle. It's where we used to have little things in, I'm going to say elementary school. But we'd have a little thing with one another, and maybe in third or fourth grade, you had somebody that you just probably didn't like too much, and they were picking on you. And so you knew you had to stand up to them, and you, you had to kind of get there and, and get your mind in order because they were bigger than you, and they were all kinds of other things, and they had, you know, a crew and everything. So you just knew this is not going to be a good day. But then you find out your older brother, your cousins, everyone else comes right up beside you. And all of a sudden, your voice that went from, well, I don't know what I guess, like, oh, oh, so what you going to do? What's it going to, what, what? Because I have somebody that has my back. I have something stronger than me, someone stronger than me, that now I can put all the hope. So my attitude changed all of a sudden, not because I had any more power, but the power behind me. I could rest in. David helped understand this is what it means to put my trust in God because now he fights my battles and I don't have to worry about an enemy because he is the one who can vanquish even the enemies. And so when David gives us that reality, what is it that we are afraid of? What is it that we are trusting in That if we knew God is behind us. And more than just the earthly situation, God is behind us so that even if we lose, we win. Because we don't serve a God who only controls this situation. As we sang, we serve a sovereign God who controls everything. All things are under his power. And so when we trust in God to control, and to, even if something should happen to us, even if we have to go through a season of hurt and a while of pain, we know that he sees it. Yeah. 
And if he sees it, then he knows how he is going to bring us out of it. We just have to rely upon him and not the circumstances. When you see this, if you ever get a chance to go back, read 2 Samuel chapters 13 through about 19. And you'll see this very evidence. When they had David on the run, David identified to those who wanted to stay behind with him. He devised a plan. David didn't just give up. He was outnumbered, so to speak, outgunned. And David didn't just say, well, then let it be, let it be. David still took God's faith, acted as a king, and still did the king-servant thing. Got those out of town who could, and then planned and devised a way to get back God's throne. But here's what David said. It's a wonderful passage of identifying his faith in, in God in this situation. David turns to his leaders and he says, Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark. And I'm sorry, this is coming out of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 25 through 26. David says, Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. David has placed his life, his times in the Lord's hand. The outcome is up to you, God. I will just continue to do what I believe you have shown me to do. When we place our hope and our faith in God, he will lead us, but we can then trust whatever happens, God is going to work it for our good. And so the God who holds the times in our hands, in his hands, he's a sovereign God. And David's experience, it mirrors Christ's sufferings on the cross. The physical pain, the emotional agony, the isolation, the rejection, all of that, the reproach. Jesus endured all this and more at Calvary. The difference is that David's suffering was the consequence of his own sin, but Christ's suffering was the consequence of our sin. And as a sin bearer, Christ took upon himself all of our sin and shame. Our iniquity was laid upon him. All we like sheep, as Isaiah says, have gone astray, and the Lord, each of us have gone his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, his son, the iniquity of us all. Jesus cried, bled, and dead, and died in order that we might be cleansed, delivered, and blessed. And he knew that by putting his trust in God, that death would not be the final call, but that God raised Jesus three days later. And Jesus met with the disciples and the apostles and ate with them and, and taught them and instructed them and then ascended to the throne and the right hand of God, interceding for all of those who have placed their faith in him. It's the gospel. Christ who came, suffered and died for our good, for our sins, so that we might receive the righteousness of God. 
Friends, that's available to you today. God would desire that we don't stay in a place where we're foreign, that we can't run into his place of refuge, his strong tower, but that we run to Christ and receive salvation, receive the good news that by placing our faith and repenting of our sins in Christ Jesus, we too will be able to lift and rise from the grave and that we too will have that eternal time with God. And so I can trust God because he's the source of our trust. And I can trust God because of his gracious love for me. But I can finally, I can trust God because of his abundant goodness for those whom he loves. Verse 19 through 24 says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had him, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sights. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. And when I cried, for you for help. Verse 23, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord. David understood what it meant that in times of great difficulty, times of rescue, comes times of rejoicing. And we rejoice because of the great goodness of God. God keeps those safe who take refuge in him. David couldn't bear the thought of being cut off from God. And so he pleads, God, do not cut me off, but that he wished and that he desired that God would be the one who would rescue him and that he heard the voice of his pleas. God heard him. And gave mercy when he cried for help. It's a call to all of us as saints. We are to take action to love the Lord. And part of the ways in which we show God's love, is, as was said earlier, it's being obedient to God. 1 John 5 and John 14 lets us know that we love God by keeping his commandments. But then he also says... We should be strong in heart. We're to take up the courage to be with him, and we're to take up the courage in order to watch God in his glory be able to fend and fight for us. And those things then we can trust in God's goodness. It's always important to give God the glory when God rescues us and when he is the one who saves us and causes our suffering and meets those needs. Oftentimes we give it to the world, we give it to others. It's not wrong to thank a doctor for having been used by God as the source of cure or help. But oftentimes when we go through suffering, we let nobody know and we let no one know who it is who's at the source and the seed of that. One of the ways that we show God's love is by rejoicing and letting it be known who is the source of our strength. 
And so this is David's song. It's to remind us to trust God because he is the source of our trust. It's a challenge and difficulties. Times we're to be reminded that we can go up to God for mercy and grace because he loves us and that it's a reminder to us to give God the glory when God brings us through our circumstance because of his abundant goodness. Church, let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you once again for your blessings. We pray, Father, that in the reading of your word, that, Lord, you have perhaps touched a heart. We just pray, Lord, that as David has helped us to see that you are a sovereign God and you are the one, Lord, who uh, brings us to you so that we can find our shelter uh, in your hiding place. But that, Father, it is in you, not a building, not a cave, not a dwelling, but it's in you, Father, the personal relationship we have through Christ Jesus. So, Father, I pray that those who heard the words today would trust in you, make you the most closest to them in their time of need, and that they would call upon you so that, Father, you might deliver them to the rejoicing and the glory of your marvelous praise. We thank you and we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.